Thank you for tuning in to the Mile 40 podcast. I am Beshoy Tadros, the author of Break Barriers and Audacious, both of which are sold on Amazon. And I invite you to join me as I engage with guests to discuss those bounce back moments that we encounter on our personal journey. Mile 40 is a forum to learn about how athletes, professionals, and leaders of all backgrounds stare down moments in life where the only option is to rise up. The Mile 40 podcast strives to remind listeners that the comeback is always greater than the setback. Hey all, it's me, Bishoy. As a marathon runner and endurance athlete, I've come to understand the importance of properly fueling your body for preparation and recovery. Every day you get a shot at success. How you start your day typically paints a picture of what the rest of the day will look like. Start your day with a super convenient, healthy, and delicious nutritional win. Meal one by Creatures of Habit. Overnight oatmeal packed with 30 grams of plant-based protein, chia, flax, and pumpkin seeds. Vitamin D3, omega-3s, a probiotic, and digestive enzymes made in under one minute. Stop wasting time or worrying about what to eat as your first meal of the day. Start with meal one. Visit creaturesofhabit.com, creatures spelled with a K, and use code MILE40 for 15% off a one-time purchase or the first subscription order payment. Welcome back to another episode of the Mile 40 podcast. Today's episode is extremely unique because today's episode truly embodies the pit to peak trajectory. Today, I'd like to introduce you all to Sarah Kafka. Sarah recently filmed a documentary where she and three other women who had never met in person climbed Mount Kilimanjaro together. Sarah is currently pursuing a degree in medicine. She's going to tell us the whole backstory. She's actually still finishing up pre-med right now and plans to be taking her MCAT soon. This is all going to become very very relevant to the narrative as we dive in. So let me just get straight to it. Thank you for joining me today, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So in your bio, it it said, Sarah was born into a storm. And I don't know where else to begin. So let's just start there. Um, I I know that um, you you came from a rough beginning. So let's start there and let's learn a little bit about how things got going. Yeah, um, I was the youngest of, uh, I'm the third girl, but I was the baby. Um, And um, my older two sisters had a different dad than I did. Um, And so um, when I was younger, um, there was just like a lot going on, but you're a kid and you don't really you know, your ideas of the world are forming. So you're not really sure what is appropriate and what's not appropriate. And so um, I basically don't remember the majority of my childhood, Um, you know, in school or in life, there's constantly the icebreaker of like, what's your first memory? And I, I have none. Um, And when I was eight years old, I remember someone knocking on a door an access to the house that we didn't use very often. And my dad asked me who it was and it was a bunch of police officers and they came in and arrested my father. And that was basically the last time I saw him. And, um, you know, flash forward, it turns out that, um, he was a serial sexual predator and, um, that's really, in my mind, in my cognitive space where my life kind of really begins, because from that point forward is really like what I remember. Got it. Um, And you had shared with me um, that your mother was the one that turned him in. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and it's, it's hard to talk about because it's not just my story. You know, this affects so many people. Um, And it's something, you know, I knew we were recording this podcast today. It's something that I've really been thinking about because, you know, this happened when I was a child and this thing that's happened in my life, I've never spent more time talking about it than I have in the last year. And it's really weird because, um, 
when you survive sexual abuse and sexual assault, you have this um, fight for autonomy within yourself, like bodily autonomy. But it's even more weird um, when it happens in your family that you almost feel like you don't have autonomy of your story or like autonomy of your memories or like the autonomy to share almost. And so it's like, you're fighting for it on another level. And so, um, it's, it's a hard thing to talk about because, you know, my family members are still around. Um, but he, uh, was a photographer for, a. Uh, a local newspaper and he documented his abuse of the girls and my mother found that documentation and turned him into the police and so um you know not only does she have to deal with the fact that she married a man who essentially ruined her children but um she was the one that saw the evidence of it and had to turn him in so Wow. I'm going to give that just a minute to kind of sink in because it's really, you know, you talk about the battle of autonomy of your own body and, and, you know, even owning the pieces of the story, because it's not just your story. Um, And as the interviewer in my seat right now, you know, I have so many emotions running through me because number one, I want to thank you for your continued bravery and continued dialogue. And the fact that, you know, again, for my seat, I know this is very difficult for you. And I'm also thinking of anyone out there who's potentially listening, who's gone through a similar trauma, who probably is really thanking you right now for your bravery. Um, and at the same time, um, I'm just so proud of you because I know how this story goes from here. Um, and so, you know, to all the listeners out there, I know I'm, I might sound like I'm getting a little emotional right now, but I, I, I kind of want to make sure that I direct you properly. So it's not like a, okay, and then what happened type of <laughs> part of the story. Um, mm-hmm. Because I'm sure that there was some aftermath. You know, there was probably some explanations that your mother had to give to um, you and your sisters. Um, And then there was probably a period of transition to whatever the next kind of normal in your life looked like. Mm -hmm. So can we talk about the immediate aftermath of what you can recall from that period? Because he was a photographer, um, it was a pretty big deal. And it was on news channels. And I remember my mom pulling me out of school for a while. Um, and I also remember, um, some of the really close friends that I had as a kid, uh, they were no longer allowed to play with me anymore. Um, and there was a huge transition. I, you know, moved in with my mom, um, you know, it's very common with women who go through divorces to have a, a devastating financial change, um, which is what we experienced. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think we were all trying to process what had happened. Um, but I think over the next few years, um, through my teenage years, it really took a toll on my mom and our relationship shifted so much. Um, and you know, she had so much anger inside of her and as an adult now, like I can understand, like, obviously you would have a ton of anger. Um, but as a kid, when you're searching for some kind of stability and some kind of safety, and your parent um, is angry or absent, um, you don't understand it. And so all you can do really is learn how to really just like survive on your own. And that's basically 
what I did, you know, um, they like to make fun of me because, uh, and like in jest, not to like, you know, talk badly about me or whatever, but, um, my sister was much older than me. And I remember there was a boy who came over to take her out on a date and he had mentioned like, either he had been drinking or they were going to go drinking. And I stood in front of the door with a baseball bat, not letting him leave with my sister until my mom came home, you know? And that was like my role. I was like the adult, you know, um, as like a 10 year old kid (laughs) trying to protect my sister from, you know, the ways of the world. And so there definitely was a large transition, but I don't think it's the transition that people think. People maybe think like six months a year, but it really, I think even that transition still happening. You know, I have a very different relationship with my mother now. Thankfully, it's such a sacred relationship, but it took a really long time for us to get there. And so, um, I think we're all still just transitioning from that. Got it. Um, How would you say your experience um, has impacted your overall ability to to love yourself? Mm. Um, I mean, look, I don't know if there was ever a period where you held yourself accountable for anyone else's mistakes. Um, but did you have trouble given the fact that, you know, things began to get isolating for you? Um, and that, um, you know, there was almost really nowhere to turn. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the picture that I'm seeing right now. Um, Mm -hmm. can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, um, you know, one of the, I think greatest gifts that happened to me because of this whole situation was um i'm not sure if it was the policy of the state of florida where it happened or if it was my mother or both but i was placed into therapy immediately like immediately and for years and i am eight years old i'm my brain is physically changing and developing and encoding information And during this time in my life, you know, that's when your sense of self starts to develop. And I'm doing this in a safety setting, learning how to communicate, learning how to explore my feelings. And so that was really a gift that has given me so much, um, I think, power, but also tools and tools in the business world that people don't have, (laughs) mind you. Absolutely. Um, and so I, I grew up, um, really knowing my power, um, really being protective, um, of having like a stark knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. Um, and it, you know, it was hard. I, I, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it later, but I didn't get to go to college because I didn't have an adult in my life. I didn't have anyone overseeing me to be like, you need to take a language class. You need to do SAT preps. I never took the SAT. Like, so I didn't have an adult in that sense, but I was aware enough to survive and um, to recognize in relationships when they were not healthy. And I was not interested in that, you know, I had a long-term boyfriend who treated me amazingly. And that was the one thing I always said, I will never be with a man who resembles anyone of the past that I have seen. I won't do it, you know? Um, And so I really didn't struggle with self-love until I think the last few years. And I think that was really part of like my breaking process. Cause for the first time I was like, I don't know who the hell I am. And, um, and you know, that's, that's a hard thing to question in your mid thirties. Absolutely. I mean, you talk about the, the power of 
being put in therapy at a very young age. And um, can I ask, have you gone to therapy at an older age? Um, I not really. I've just started recently um, to deal with, you know, some of the school stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than, you know, I, I went for such a long time when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, that a lot of those tools really stick with you. Can you talk a little bit from what you remember around um, maybe the safety it provided to go to therapy back then? Yeah, just um, just to know that I was with an adult, you know, just to know that you're with an adult, like I can relax a little bit. I can trust that someone's going to take the reins and, you know, I can explore how I'm doing and how I'm feeling without impacting someone else's mental space. You know, I think that was the other thing as a kid is like, I, I was always so aware of the chaos around me that I never felt like I could add to it. I had to tame the chaos and put my stuff aside, you know? And I think when I made the shift in my life to ship, that was part of it. It was like, I'm so tired of surviving. I'm so tired of surviving. I just want to live, you know? And, um, and so I think that's where that safety was, is like, I, I could express and and do those things without harming other people. You know, was that perhaps one of the only areas of your childhood and adolescence where you felt like you were living a normal life as much as, you know, it may be perceived that you were in that circumstance because of abnormal situate an abnormal situation. Like, do you, do you recall any period of, you know, between childhood and, and the age of 18 or 20 where life felt normal or was it always kind of a, no, no, N- no. I mean, no, and that's fair. And that, that's fair. <laughs> I want to know. I, I appreciate the transparency here. And, and I, I had a feeling that was going to be the answer, but I really want to paint a picture for the listeners out there. You know, we've had people on the show where a certain incident happens or one incident happens after the other. And, um, you know, there's still pockets of, of normalcy. Mm -hmm. And in your situation, it was different because you had an entire decade, more than a decade essentially blacked out or erased um, because of because of your circumstances. You mm-hmm. alluded to the fact that, um, you know, like no one was there to tell you to take a test or to take your SATs or to take a foreign language. And I know that your education was heavily impacted upon this. And, you know, we're going to come full circle with regards to what you're pursuing now and, and how you got there. But let's paint a little bit of a picture around that. So um, you didn't graduate high school, right? And you did did graduate high school. Barely. (laughs) Okay. So you barely graduated high school. What happened right after high school? Were you you just thrown into the working world? Um, I was fortunate enough to... I was going to a performing arts high school. And um, I was in the theater program not because it was something that like I was particularly passionate about, but it was because like my mom really wanted me to do it. Yeah. Um, And when all of my friends, you know, started applying to colleges and I was like, Oh, cool. Like I'm going to do that. And then I found out like, that is not a thing you're able to do. Um, a acting conservatory in New York. saw one of my performances and they recruited me to come to New York city, uh, with a scholarship here. And so obviously I was like, I want to get the F out. So let's go. Can I ask, uh, what kind of performance it was? Uh, yeah, it was acting uh, specifically for film and, film and television. Awesome. Um, and it's still a school here. Um, yeah. yeah. So I did oh. that for a while. Okay. But, so then you were at the conservatory. Um, and then what happened? Um, so when my mom drove me to the airport to like 
go to this school. Uh, I think she handed me like twenty dollars hmm. and was like, "You better get a job right away." Um, and she dropped me off at the airport, and I remember just like feeling devastated, like not. It wasn't like care or concern or support. You know, I was on my own again. I was on my own again, and it was very clear, like you better get a job as soon as you land. Cause this is all you have. Um, I'd never taken a taxi before, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm now trying to figure all this out. So I got a job and when you come from having no money and you get a job and you're like, wait, I can, I can make money come in. It's like, it's an, it's game changer a game changer and everything else becomes secondary because now it's like survival on the next level, you know? Um, and so that's what I did. I, I worked, um, I worked around New York city. Um, unfortunately, like the sexual assault thing followed me for many years. I think, um, when you survive something like that, it's almost like predators are drawn to you it's almost like they can sense you in a crowd and you know i had to deal with that for a long time um i got stalked at work when i worked in grand central and the police had to come in and like arrest this guy and um so it was a lot um eventually i ended up back in florida and i didn't know what i wanted to do um And I got a job at a local Aveda salon and I was in my early 20s. And I was like, you know what? Like, I know how to talk to people. And I'm noticing people around me don't know how to do that. Like, I I think I could be a leader. And they were like, no, you're, you know, you're young. Like, and I bought every business book I could find. I read every single page. I did, I worked my butt off. And within the next year, you know, I was promoted to management. And before I knew it, I was like a store leader for multiple locations. And so I was really like, I have a knack for this and I can secure my own survival. And that's what I'm going to do. And, um, and I really spent the next few years just like grinding away at my career. Um, and eventually. Yeah. yeah. No, keep going. I'm not going to cut you off. Go ahead. (laughs) No, I mean, it's not, it's really not that interesting. I, you know, I knew I wanted to get out of Florida. Florida for me is such a dark uh, place. And I knew that I, I just needed to get out of there. I came back to New York for the first time in 10 years. And I saw one of my old guy friends and he looked at me and he was like, what are you doing? You know? You don't belong there. Come back here. And I think within a month, I got back. I was back. Yeah. And- um, I want to talk a little bit about that period, especially you mentioned earlier the fact that like you went from broke to a job. And I, I kind of want to give some context around that um, just to let people in a little bit. So what kind of work were you doing in New York when you first started? I think just like retail. Got just it. retail jobs. Yeah. And where were you living? Were you living like with a bunch of roommates or how, how did you make ends meet? Yeah. Yeah. I had a bunch of roommates out in Queens. Um, Got it. Yeah. Got it. So it's like the true New York story of just moving here, <laughs> moving here with $20 in your pocket and and figuring it out. Um, wow. Um, you talked about the fact that, you know, the sexual abuse was something that just kind of carried on with you um, throughout. And, you know, I kind of want to use this as an opportunity to allow you to speak to um, the listeners out there uh, who might be going through something similar with regards to their past, not necessarily going away um, under similar circumstances. Then, you know, I, I don't know if you feel like you're in a position to speak to people now, but if you are, you know, please, you know, what kind of words of either guidance or comfort would you give to someone who is in the position you were in while you were, for instance, working in Grand Central, going through what you were going through? I think like the most powerful thing is there's so many people 
who have lived through this. And I think, I think that's really the most powerful thing is like finding people that you can share your story with. Um, and, and I say that with trepidation because, um, there's been science studies that show when people share their stories and they're met with an adverse reaction, they experience a secondary trauma that Mm -hmm. makes them never want to share again. Yeah. Um, but I, I think knowing that there are so many people out there is the one thing that I can offer solace. Um, I think every story is so unique, you know, and I don't know that it, I used to really say like, it happened so long ago, it doesn't affect who I am. You know, when I signed up for this documentary, that was like, it's not a part of my identity. I do not want to be the sexual abuse girl. Um, But it's still ever present, you know, it's, I'm here trying to tell my story to you. And it's hard because I'm still trying to protect everybody else who's also been harmed by it, you know? So in a lot of ways, you move out of it, but in a lot of ways, it stays with you forever. And so I think really just finding people and knowing that you aren't alone is so important in almost every circumstance. I appreciate you sharing that with me. And and I, I, I'm sure that's going to really reverberate with a lot of the listeners out there who are reflecting on this right now, to your point, you know, this isn't what defines you. There's a lot more to your story. I think this was a part of your story that um, set things off and maybe gave you the ammo to pursue more. And, um, you know, you had mentioned to me um, your experience after you had gutted out those years of your career and and uh, rose the ranks um, with um, the limitations you faced once you came upon an executive board opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I think this is an important transition right now because um, to a lot of the listeners out there, it was really important to start this off by sharing Sarah's background, but I really want you to hone in now and kind of realize and learn um, how the story, um, you know, has a life that that continues to live on, and um, it lived on with every step thereafter. So let, let's talk about what happened there. Um, I mean, again, in a lot of ways, I I got lucky. Um, I worked for a man who really saw potential in me and really believed in me and invested in me. And so he kept um, putting me in higher and higher leadership positions and eventually ended up on an executive board. Um, But the problem with that is not everybody believed in me in the same way. And, um, and I was really met with that resistance over and over again. I, you know, was one of very few women, definitely one, the only one without a college degree, let alone a master's, you know, from an Ivy League school. And um, there had been some shifts in the company. You know, at this point, I was convinced I was going to spend the rest of my life at this company. And um the CEO who I was really close to and really invested in me and had my back was getting more away from the day-to-day operations. And he really wanted me to work with a CFO that they had just brought on from Silicon Valley. And it was really here that I was like, this is not, it's just not going to go well. He was a tech guy. Um, When we did my annual salary review, he looked at me and said, you better be thankful that I don't put all of your qualities and qualifications into a spreadsheet and base your review of base your um, salary. What a jerk. Yeah. And um, what kind of company was this? This was this was in the retail industry. No, this is uh, in the physical therapy space. Got it. Okay. And, you know, they hired this. This isn't a guy who was like within the company. It brought him in from the outside, you know, and had I known he wasn't going to make it another three months there, I probably would have stayed. 
But at the time I was like, this guy's not going anywhere and he's, he's the CFO. So like, what choices do I have? You know, he's saying to me, you aren't worth it. Um, and I, you know, I was like that kid at the airport again with $20 in my pocket, you know, like no one is going to save you. No one is going to come at the end of the day and make it nice for you. So my back's against the wall. What am I going to do? You know, and this was like two days before I had a planned vacation. And I spent the entire planned vacation just grieving this loss that I, I, yeah. And I'm in my early thirties. I have built this career. I have shown what I am capable of and I am still fighting to just be paid equally and fairly. And I'm so tired of fighting. I just want to walk into a room and someone see me and value me for who I am as in my current existence. You know, I just like, how can you bring a family into that situation? Like you can't, you know, it's, and so I was just like, I'm so tired of having to constantly convince people that I'm valuable. I don't want to do it anymore. And if getting a college degree is what is going to clear that barrier or that bias for me, then that's what I'm going to do because I'm not going to allow it to be a weakness for me anymore. And I came back and I was like, (laughs) I'm going to school. And, um, that was really it, you know, that was really it. You know, I mean, this hits home with me on so many levels because in almost all corporate arenas and in any kind of profession, a lot of times people do come across this situation where other people place a value on you. And it's really important to remember that if anyone's placing a, a value on you, 100% of the time, they're going to undervalue you. It's not even 99% of the time or 99.9% of the time. 100% of the time, they are going to undervalue you. And it's extremely important that you know, as individuals, we do what we can to remind ourselves and to keep our value intact. And, you know, I've come across this countless times personally um, in, in the corporate world where you just need to say, no, like, like, no, like this, this is what I'm worth. Like you, you don't tell me what I'm worth. I'm going to tell you what I'm worth. Um, and, you know, I say this because I want you to know that even without the college degree, you're worth a lot more. Like, and, and that's the thing that I think, um, you know, as a society and uh, the way that a lot of these institutions have been built. And, you know, I'm talking on such a broad lens because this applies to so many places on so many different levels and so many different industries in different types of um, institutions. And it's, it's not just even the corporate world. It's the private sector. It's, it's everywhere out there um, where... Um, people need to realize that they have no right to put a value on other human beings. Um, and, you know, your hurt is coming from a place and it's very understandable, but this is something that just transcends, you know, this one conversation. This is something that goes to everybody out there who at one point has felt lesser than somebody else because of something that was outside of their control. Uh, whether it was a certain condition that they have, whether it was the family that they were born into, whether it was their financial situation, whether it was just their background or their identity or um, you know their preference. And so um, I, I want to tell you that you sharing that is extremely powerful on on so many levels. And I want to make sure we don't skip this point. And you know, if, if you're a business leader out there listening to this show, I want you to be extremely cognizant uh, of this conversation in particular. Because people like Sarah and people who have felt undermined for you know different reasons in their lives, they will come out and they will come out stronger um, than you could ever imagine. And there's going to be a day 
where someone like Sarah is going to be telling you that you're the one that's not qualified for whatever it is that you want to do. Um, and so that's the end of my rant. But this is a to- <laughs> this is a topic that is extremely important to me and something that I think should never, um, you know, go untouched. And and for some reason, I don't know why, but it keeps coming up over and over and over and over again. So. Now, you decide to go back to school. Um, at this point, did you know that you wanted to pursue medicine or were you just going back to get a degree at this point? Well, first of all, I just want to say I'm so glad that was recorded because I'm definitely going to replay that for myself later in life when I'm having a bad day. <laughs> um, but uh, the original ambition, just because so much of my work had been focused on teaching people how to communicate, teaching people how to lean into difficult conversations, because you have to do that in business. If you are a leader in business and people feel like you aren't giving them the truth or you aren't being authentic, they will not buy into you. And so I really just like spent so much of my later career, just like developing people and teaching these things that I was like, you know what, I'm going to go get my PhD in clinical psychology. Um, But There was a point in time where um, I just said, you know what, like I'm already doing it. I'm already going for it. And I would always say to my friends, you know, in the next lifetime, you know, the next time I'm born into a different family, I would be a doctor. And I was just like, you're already taking a jump. Just leap a little further. because you're already in the midst of the scary part. Um, And so that's when I really decided that I was just going to go for it and be a doctor. Um, Because I think I just want to care for my community. And, um, and that's really when I think of caring for my community, that's what I think of. And so that's what I aspire to, to become. I love that, you know, that taking that like one, little step further or that one extra extra leap uh, i think that a lot of times we we tend to undervalue our own potential sometimes mm-hmm. uh especially when you think about it contextually in terms of what we've overcome like you know like you've already overcome so much to begin with um and every time you get to a new level you expect like that's your cap there's like no way you can go any higher than that Um, and the more and more you do it, the more you realize, all right, you got to stop having that conversation with yourself about your cap because your cap doesn't really exist. Um, and, um, you know, I, I can relate to that myself personally on, on certain accords, but, um, you know, kudos to you for, for getting there when you did. I mean, look, you look at your story sometimes and in the way that you, you've shared it with me and and kind of reading it and, and you kind of point out the fact that you feel or that even realistically age-wise you're older than some of your fellow students but the truth of the matter is that like they 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 didn't go through what you went through you like you are so much more resilient than um your peers um you have so much more experience than your peers and and so this is one of those things that like Age is a number, but there's so much value in the fact that you're doing it when you're doing it. And perhaps um, there is a little bit of destiny behind that with regards to why you are where you are. So after you decide to go back to school, um, you had mentioned to me um, that you have your own disabilities um, that we haven't talked about. So maybe let's talk about those and how those maybe impacted uh, your education. Yeah. So, I mean, I... I did what I always did, which is I started from the bottom, you know, and I climbed my way to the top, talk about, you know, pit to peak. But, you know, I started at a community college because that's the only place I could start. I never took an SAT and never took a language course. Um, So I started at a community college and um, I don't know who needs to hear this, but community college classes are excellent. And if you are even the slight bit curious, like do it because those professors teach in a way that is really from a passion uh, that does not exist in, in higher, you know, more stuffy institutions. Um, 
But then I got accepted into Columbia. Um, and, you know, when just, I ca- got just casually dropping that in there. Then she got accepted into Columbia. <laughs> I'm going to take a second to give you a little clap there. So then she got accepted into Columbia. How, wh- where did that, where did, what made you even think of applying to Columbia at that point? Well, I mean, you kind of mentioned like, watch out for Sarah because she's going to come swinging one day. And um, that's at my job. That's where we'd always try to recruit from was Columbia. Like Columbia was the like, you know, golden standard. And but also, you know, you talk about self-love and like. I wanted that for myself, you know, I wanted to. I really wanted to feel like I deserved that, that I deserved access to that. And now I, I genuinely feel that everybody should have access to those kinds of places. Yeah. But I really just wanted that for myself, um, that achievement. And so when I got accepted, it was absolutely one of the best days of my entire life. Um, Which, by the way, I don't want to go on a side note, but I believe it was Columbia. Oh, I don't feel like one of the Ivy Leagues recently came out and said they're no longer um, looking at SAT and ACT scores for. Um, except was it Columbia or uh, no, it was a different, <laughs> they're still looking, um, yeah. no, but that is the trend and I do yeah. hope that it continues. Yeah. Um, I do think it's a little bit of propaganda because they still ask for your SAT scores, but they're trying to do a more holistic approach. Got it. Um, but yeah, I do hope that that wave absolutely continues. Got it. Sorry. I did not mean to cut you off there. No, it's totally fine. Um, and then when I got to Columbia and started pre-med, it's basically where everything exploded. It just everything exploded. My first semester there, you know, is when the pandemic hit. Um, and, you know, we talk about me being alone as a kid. I have never felt more alone in my entire life. I am an older student who does not come from money, uh, whose parents are not doctors, who have, you know, disabilities. I, you know, I was in a statistics course and they used the example of the median SAT score of the accepted uh, student at Columbia. The median SAT score is in the top 1%, which Mm. means that there is higher than that and there's lower than that. and. These classes, it's not like you do the work and you get an A. It is yeah. the top 20% of students are applicable for A's. Yeah. And that's the percentage cut after that. And so, you know, it's just all of these things um, that just really compounded and broke me. You know, I am taking out these loans in my 30s. I'm jeopardizing my not only my financial future but my family's financial future and everybody's banking on me to make it and i'm participating in this program that banks on you not to make it you know it's um they just released a study that that showed you know an example of a hundred students who start pre-med and of the hundred who started 16 of them complete the coursework. And of the 16, seven got accepted into med schools. You know, for the record, for the record I was one of the 84. <laughs> so, so I was pre-med for a whole year in college. <laughs> so I, I totally get it. But it, you know, it, what it did is it brought to light a larger conversation for me, which was, here's this profession that is established to care for the public. And yet we have people in these positions that do not represent the public. 75% of first-year med students come from the top two income brackets in the country. We have doctors prescribing medicine to people, and they've never known what it's like to not be able to afford the medicine they're prescribing. Like. In 2019, the New England Journal of Medicine compared the racism in medicine killing as many people as racism in policing. Like, it's a big problem. And so I, 
felt like I am this tiny person with all these things that I'm bringing to the table that are stacked against me, dyslexia, you know, slower cognition speeds. I'm older, you know, and I'm going against this ginormous system that is built to not have people like me make it. And it just felt impossible. And it just broke me because all of these things that I had told myself for surviving everything that I've been through, that it's like, you know, I used to always tell myself, I had this mantra, it was like, no matter what happens to you, you will always survive. And now that mantra didn't apply anymore. You know, I'm spending 18 hours a day studying indoors and I'm failing these tests and I'm getting these signs from school, from people, from colleagues. You know, two weeks ago, I got laughed at in class. Like it's, it's hitting me from every angle. Like you don't belong here. And it's, it's hard to, after two years to not internalize that, to say, maybe those things are true. You know, like how hard and for how long do you buck against the system before you realize like maybe the feedback you're getting is true? And so it really, it really spiraled me. Yeah. I mean, I hear you. I mean, all as you're talking, all I'm thinking about the system sucks. The yeah. system is is a piece of shit. It the system sucks. And and it it kind of it goes across the board again. It, the system needs so much refining. And whatever system that is to whoever is listening out there. Um, you know, and I struggle with this a lot because I find myself rebelling against the system and wanting to be a proponent for change. But then when you get yourself into um, a room of, of people who are supposed to be championing the change, a lot of times you just find yourself surrounded by the system again. And then all of a sudden it's like, I this isn't where I wanted to be. Um, but I think what you should do. And what I've learned to do is to use the system for your advantage. Let it get you where you need to go. And then after that, you're free. Um, It's the whole idea of... And this is a little different for you, but maybe for other people out there. It's that whole idea of using your 9 to 5 to fund your fund to 5 to 9. And then ultimately, using that 5 to 9 to raise enough to get out of your nine to five. Um, and, and that's how it works in the corporate world when it comes to, um, you know, gaming the system. Um, in, in your world, it's definitely a little bit different. But um, my experience has taught me that um, it's okay to want to fight the system. Yeah. But at the same time, um, you know, you need to remain grounded and 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 make sure you have good boundaries with it. Otherwise, it will break you. The system can break you. It will. Mm-hmm. Um, I could do a whole episode on on this quote unquote system, um, and and how it could absolutely you know shake a human down and and bring them down to nothing and and make them want to walk away from everything and give up on all their hopes and dreams and desires and feel absolutely worthless because you know. A, couple people who don't know any better were taught like that this is what is valuable and this is not valuable. And so, um, you know, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how you um, decided to um, turn the corner um, on on maybe that that pit of despair. Well, before we move on, I just want to say something in response to you. And I think I think one of the most important things that I've learned from this whole process is, you know, at this point, I've spent years studying the brain and studying psychology and emotions. And um, as a society, we really lean away from things like that we deem negative emotions like anger. And 
I think that anger can be such a powerful emotion. And I really think as a society, we need to learn to embrace it. And I, but it's a spectrum, right? You need enough anger to fuel you to keep going, to recognize that there's an injustice because without anger, we won't change anything, right? Like we don't change anything in complacency. We change things because we're enraged by them. But there's also a point where it becomes a chip on your shoulder and then it starts to weigh you down and it's no longer serving you. And so I really had to find that balance of like, you know, where's the anger of like, I call it like DJ Khaled myself, you know, like they don't want you to make it, you know, they don't want you to have a swimming pool. Like the appropriate anger where it's like, I recognize what's happening to me. I'm not reframing it because that wouldn't serve me because that's the reality. They don't want me to make it. But that's the anger that pushes me to want to make it. But at the same time, not being so lost in resentment that I can't move forward with my own progress. And so I just think that that's important. That is very important. I'm really glad that you shared that and put it out there. I think it's it's absolutely spot on um, with regards to just that that balance that's so necessary. Um, So thank you for sharing that. Um, as far as the change, so I was like deep in my depression um, and I saw a post on Instagram from Heidi, um, whom I've known um, from, you know, gyms in New York City and the CrossFit world. And um, she posted something about like this documentary she was doing to a climb for Mount Kilimanjaro. And I just knew immediately that I needed to do it. Um, And I was terrified. Like I didn't want to look up anything about Mount Kilimanjaro because I knew it was going to give me an actual panic attack. But I knew that I needed to do it at the same time because I had been living in such a state of disassociation for so long. You know, during this depression, I gained weight. I I would look at myself in the mirror and I could not see myself in my face. And then I would go to school and I would receive feedback and, and have feelings and thoughts about myself that I also did not recognize. And so I was living in this constant state of internal chaos where I was like, I just need to know one way or the other like am i this person who survived all of this stuff who has incredible resilience and grit or am i this other person that i've been introduced to who's inept and weak and stupid and you know can't take care of herself like what a disgrace you're in your 30s and you can barely wash your face once a day i really needed to know definitively who I was. And I couldn't move on until I knew that. Because if I was this resilient person, then I could put this other thing into context and know that like, this is what's happening at school, but it's not who I am entirely. And if this is true, then at least I can go back to work and rebuild on this person. But I needed to know, and I just needed like an outside thing to show me. You know, it's interesting. I love that you you decided to do the climb. And it reminds me of of really how I got to mile 40. Like I, I, I needed to make this crazy decision. I needed to do this crazy decision to do something that I hadn't ever done before. And I think that sometimes when you think about these events of endurance and kudos to you, because I mean, look, in my opinion, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro is a much wilder accomplishment than doing an Ironman, which is what I did. And that's how, that's how I got to my moment. Uh, um, and I, I need to ask you because I feel like a lot of times people don't really understand what's going through our minds when we, when we're seeking out this clarity. I remember telling people in, in my situation that I signed up for this Ironman. It was the scariest thing that I had ever done. I had no idea why I was doing it. People kept asking me, why are you doing it? I didn't have an answer for them. I knew I needed to do it. 
And like, I knew I had to be like totally locked in mentally and emotionally. And I knew that like there was going to be something about doing this race that was going to unleash a potential that I was kind of holding on to for a long time. I didn't know how it was going to come out. I didn't ever imagined it to come out the way that I did where I found myself at the 40th mile, you know, completely dehydrated, salt all over my skin, everybody running past me and completely alone. And that was the moment that changed everything for me where all of a sudden I was like, like, you can finish this. And, and like, I, I just basically in my head, time transcended all of a sudden I was thinking of the younger version of Bashoy, what he went through. And then I powered through to finish the last 30 miles. And now I had a story to tell that was my story. And, and it wasn't, I'm saying that because I see so much of that in your story. And I'm wondering, did you have the similar feelings leading up to the climb? And then while you were out on the climb, did you have like kind of this like moment of like, holy shit, if I could do this, I could do anything and no one in this world and no system and no rules are going to break me. Yes. And also like your story just gave me like full on body goosebumps. But I guess that's like why we do these stories. That's why we do this. That's why we do these things. And and like I, I do like truly see such a parallel where there's that buildup and there's that that knowledge of I am worth more and I can do more and I'm going to do something crazy just to show myself that like, I'm not being foolish about this. And so that way, like no one can ever say that I don't belong in this room ever again, or that I don't belong on this stage or that like, I don't deserve this value. Um, And so um, let's talk about the climb itself now. So tell us about what happened leading up to it, the preparation, um, and if you have any highlights. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I did this in the lowest point of my life. Honestly, you know, I have generally always been an athlete, um, and, you know, take care of myself. And I just really had, I just had been broken and, I signed up for this thing. We got, you know, the green light that this was really happening. And I remember walking to the gym for the first time. My apartment's on 28th. It was on 42nd. So I had to cross like this mini mountain on 34th Street. You know, like if you know, you know. Yeah. And it's not a big deal. But for me, I couldn't even walk up this hill without taking a break like that's how far gone i was to the other side and i remember thinking like holy crap what did i sign myself up for you know but i like you said i also knew that like if i signed myself up for it i was going to do it and this was going to force me to take care of myself in a way that i wouldn't otherwise accommodate you know i if I signed up for climbing a mountain, I, I can't dip out last minute of climbing a mountain. And so I knew that it was going to force me to put my health in a priority that I hadn't been doing the last two years. And so that's what I did. I went to the gym. I did sprints. I did deadlifts. I did, you know, thousands of box step ups with weighted backpacks and you know, and it was it was isolating again in the group because we're all chatting and, you know, chatting to get to know each other. We had never met each other in person, but, and they're all just like, yeah, man, I'm super amped. Like, this is going to be the time of our lives. And here I am like this shell of a human being being like, I'm effing terrified. Like, what, what are you guys so excited about? Like, do you not have an ounce, you know, obviously they have humility, but at the time I'm like, do not have an ounce of humility to think that this is not going to be terrible, you know, at certain points, because it's going to be terrible at certain points. And so I really felt again, like I was an outsider and I, and I know now that I know those girls and, and what we've been through that much of that was what I was bringing to the table and how I was viewing things, you know, yeah. when you're a hammer, all you see is a nail. Um, but we went, we flew, we got there. Um, I had prepared all I could possibly prepare. And, um, the day that we leave, I, um, 
got my period, which is only pertinent for the fact that I'm in immense physical pain and I'm now sick. I cannot keep things in my body. And we're, we're leaving the hotel to go to this mountain. And, um, they like the starting point, you all have a lunch and I'm like, I can't eat this lunch because I, we haven't even started yet and I'm already sick. Um, and I remember sending a text message to my family being like, we're about to leave. This is my last text message to you. I do not feel well. I don't know how this is going to go. Oh my <laughs> you know? God. Which in hindsight is a horrible text message to a send. Horrible to last text message to send do out. not do that. That's how you leave people <laughs> terrified for you. Oh, um, but yeah, I mean, it was a rocky rock. And again, I was like, this is the universe telling me like, I do not have what it takes. I was sick the entire duration of that climb. Um, wow. The entire duration. How and long was it? seven, eight days, seven, eight, nine days, something like that. Um, and, uh, at some points I was really, really struggling because you need to eat. You're burning a lot of calories Yeah. and I just couldn't, it was not appetizing to me. And when I did eat, it didn't bode well for me. Um, but the people there are so amazing. Like it is just another kind of human beings there. Um, who genuinely care so much about you and care about your success so much that, you know, of course there are moments where like, I just cried because I was so physically exhausted and I was mentally exhausted and they would just look me in the face and be like, we got you, you know, just take the next step. And um, the night before summit night, they switched my medication, the altitude medication to see if that was what was making me sick. Yeah. And uh, Heidi played videos for us of like recordings from our family. And that was great. But my husband wrote me a letter and I didn't read it until right before we left for Summit. And he just said everything that I needed to hear. And he was like, you are a mutter horse. You are a mutter horse. Like when the conditions are bad and it's rainy and it's sloppy, all the like, glamorous fancy horses they fall apart and that's where you thrive is when it's gritty and messy and that was like what i needed to hear and so the entire 12 13 hours that we summited this mountain i just kept my head down and kept saying you're a mutter horse you're a mutter horse you're a mutter horse and we made it you know we made it I truly believe that people like you are the most powerful humans in the world. And I, I say that in all sincerity, but in all truth, I, I do believe that if every organization out there was run by someone like you, if every country out there was run by someone like you, if every team out there was run by someone like you, we'd be living in a much, much, much better world. And um, I, I'm a, I'm really taken back by um, your journey to the summit. And um, I'm just so glad that you're here um, and that you've shared this all. It, it does it does mean a lot. Like in your own world, in your own words, um, you know, going up there to reveal who you really were. Was she the resilient little girl who survived all the horrible things in her past? Or was she the inept, weak, and unintelligent person who now resided in a body she didn't recognize? And I think we all know the answer to that question. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you want to make sure that our audience knows about you or your journey. Um, you know, I think it's a beautiful way to end with you at the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, but I, I want to make sure you know the floor is yours. So if there's anything else out there that you want people to kind of walk away after hearing, you know, Sarah speak, you know, please feel free to, to opine. I just think that it's important to, rem- to remind people that, you know, while stories are super important, I think it's natural, like that we want to compare ourselves so that we can internalize it. And 
I just want to remind people that like there's so many pit and peaks. And while this is a small peak, I'm very much in the middle of my pit. You know, I'm very much in the middle of my grind. And right now it is the endurance sport, you know, right now it is keep your head down and and say what you need to say so that you make it to the other side. And so I don't know, I think people sometimes feel like they're missing something because they haven't had that peak yet. Or maybe there's they've been in the pit for so long, you know, they've just been grinding for so long. And I just want to like normalize that for people because that's how it feels for me. And I think everyone should be on a podcast because you've celebrated me in a way that I don't know that I'm deserving of. Um, but I think that's probably human nature is that we value other people's stories a lot more than our own. And so um, I guess I just want to remind people to value your own story. Absolutely. There's no better way to to close this off. And, you know, I, I think you're spot on at the end of the day. There, there is no end game, right? Like you're going to continue climbing for the rest of your life as we all are. Um, and your story is just a reflection of the capabilities of, of humankind. And I, I really, really do appreciate it again. And I just want to say thank you for coming on. And, um, you know, I feel very, very grateful that you were able to share with us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode of the Mile 40 podcast, go ahead, subscribe, leave a review, and share the word. Thank you for being a part of the Mile 40 family. And let's unite in showing the world that comebacks are always greater than setbacks.